Welcome to the PCOS Diva podcast. My name is Amy Medling. I'm a certified health coach and founder of PCOS Diva. My mission is to help women with PCOS find the tools and knowledge they need to take control of their PCOS so they can regain their fertility, femininity, health, and happiness. Today's PCOS Diva podcast is sponsored by the seven-day Discover Your PCOS Diva Jumpstart program. Jumpstart is the place to begin when you're ready to commit to yourself and jump into your healing journey. Learn step-by-step how diet, lifestyle, and mindset changes can get you on the right path. You'll be thrilled to feel your energy return, brain fog lift, acne begin to clear, and so much more. Visit PCOSDiva.com slash jumpstart for more information and to get started today. If you haven't already, make sure you check out PCOSDiva.com. There I offer tons of great free information about PCOS and how to develop your PCOS diet and lifestyle plan so you can begin to thrive like a PCOS diva. Look for me on iTunes, Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram as well. So today I am thrilled to welcome back Dr. Jolene Brighton. She's a functional medicine doctor, a naturopath. She's a nutritional biochemist, and she has a focus on women's endocrine health. And she is recognized as the leading expert in post-birth control syndrome and the long-term side effects associated with hormonal contraceptives. And she's also the author of a brand new book, Beyond the Pill, a 30-day plan to support women on birth control, help them transition off, and eliminate symptoms of post-birth control syndrome. So welcome back, Dr. Brighton. Hey there. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited to be back with you chatting about this conversation of birth control and PCOS and how we can support women. So I do want to just make notes that episode 87, um, we talked about, it was titled Straight Talk About PCOS, the Pill, and Post-Pill Syndrome. So in that episode, you know, we talked a lot about what post-pill syndrome is and what we can do about it, testing to have done well on the pill, and often undisclosed risks of the pill. And you know, maybe you could just go over um, what post-pill syndrome is and those risks briefly um, before we get started on this podcast. Uh, but we also talked about contraceptive alternatives for women with the pill. And what I wanted you to talk about today was, okay, so we, you know, after your podcast, we know all of the risk factors of the pill. But if we still choose to be on the birth control pill, because frankly, it really helps, um, you know, whatever the symptom may be for PCOS, and we really don't want to come off of it, what can we do to sort of um, help our body, you know, detox or, um, you know, manage being on the pill better? So that's really the topic for today. But I would love for you to just kind of go back and review what is post-pill syndrome and some of the undisclosed risks of the pill. 
I am so excited for this topic and for your willingness to hold this conversation because a lot of people want to talk about hormonal birth control with me and they're like, let's say it's the devil and no woman should take it. And then they're always a little taken back when I'm like, okay, it's not the devil. And also it's 100% her choice to take it or not to take it. And we need to support her wherever she is at. So to go to your question about post-birth control syndrome, so post-birth control syndrome as it's defined in Beyond the Pill, which is my new book that you were talking about, is the signs and symptoms that come up when you stop hormonal birth control. Now on average, we see these come up about four to six months after stopping birth control, but for some women it can be sooner, other women it'll be later, and let's face it, as women we can have symptoms come up. And then we're like, okay, let's just plow through it because we got things to do in our life. And sometimes that means that like it isn't until like a couple years later that we're like, oh, now this is too much for me to handle. And that's what makes it tricky. That's one of the things that makes it tricky is that you'll go to your doctor and you're like, all right, I came off of hormonal birth control. Things were off. Now they're way worse. It's been a few years. And then your doctor says, Well, it's been so long. If it was birth control, it would have happened immediately, except that's not the way it works. And the other tricky part is, is that hormonal birth control impacts every single system in your body. And your doctor may be viewing you through the lens that, well, there are female problems and period problems, and those go along with birth control. And so if you're having gas, bloating, depression, anxiety, acne, you know, yeast infections, any other kind of, you know, signs and symptoms coming up, that's not related to birth control because it's not strictly female period problems. And that's a bit of an issue because that means that a lot of women, you know, well, let me say this. If you don't understand how medicine works, they love to compartmentalize things um, because it's really easy for us to understand, study, and treat. And so it goes like this. Like if you've got a, you know, female problem, a period problem, something going on with your fertility, your menstruation, that is something you go to the gynecologist for. Yet, if you have something going on with insulin or adrenals or thyroid, you go to the endocrinologist for that. And if it's gut-related, you go to the gastroenterologist. And we keep just piecing it out and forgetting that like it's all connected. And it's especially true in the case of polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS because, yes, PCOS manifests in all of these, quote, period problems. However... It's very much rooted in insulin dysregulation, inflammation, what's happening with the adrenals, and certainly we see thyroid issues as well. And so it's really a combination of symptoms. Now, with post-birth control syndrome, you may have started birth control for symptom management, which means that when you come off of birth control, those symptoms will likely come back. But you may have started birth control for contraceptive reasons only, and when you come off, you may find yourself for the first time experiencing new symptoms like acne. Me, for instance, I had uh, every 28 days, I had my period. I feared it because it left me writhing in pain for seven to eight days out of the month, heavy, heavy periods, carrying a sweatshirt with me. Thank goodness it was the 90s. It was fashionable to like tie a sweatshirt around your waist. That was like a thing to do. Um, to hide the fact that like every single month I bled through my clothes, I bled through my pad. Like 
they were horrific periods. And so when I was past hormonal birth control, I was super, super grateful to have something that would help me manage my periods. You know, my adult self now is like, could I have please had some root cause conversations around that? I don't know that I would have chosen anything different, but I at least would have liked to have been in the know. But when I came off of birth control, I found myself wearing a beard of cystic acne for the first time in my life, and my period was completely gone. To which my doctor was like, you probably had PCOS all along. And I happened to be in naturopathic medical school at the time. So when I countered with, no, I'm studying PCOS, and this is not what PCOS looks like, and I always had regular periods, he told me, well, you were likely misremembering your periods. I laugh at this now because any woman with dysmenorrhea, which is painful periods, or menorrhagia, which is that you bleed more than seven days or you have excessive bleeding altogether, knows when her period is coming because she counts it down like doomsday. And so understand that sometimes with PCOS, we get misdiagnosed when we come off of hormonal birth control, which I explain in the metabolic mayhem chapter of my book because of the androgen rebound and the fact that not all of us pick up menstruating just because we stop hormonal birth control. So that's a bit of the overview. And talking about post-birth control syndrome, I know we're going to go in deeper today about how to support women who do use to like do choose to use hormonal birth control, which is 100% their right. And I, for one, am grateful that women have this option. Yeah, I wanted to make a couple um, comments. So first off, I, I there's. Um, sort of this term that's kind of been bantered around, I think Dr. Laura Bryden sort of, uh, she's the first person that I saw use it, is this post-pill phenotype of PCOS, which I think is sort of what you're alluding to, um, you know, with this androgen rebound, where it may not actually be PCOS, but it's part of this post-pill syndrome. Um, totally. And I, and I do think that um, now that PCOS is kind of on the radar screen, the, um, the rates of PCOS are increasing. So mm -hmm. it's like now I'm seeing the stat is like 20% of women have PCOS. So I'm wondering if this might be what may be happening. Um, and then to your other point about how um, kind of an allopathic medicine, you know, they, they treat the symptom and compartmentalize. I think that's why 50% of women with PCOS are undiagnosed, that mm -hmm. nobody's really looking at that root cause. And then finally, I just wanted to state that, you know, I was on the pill for about 10 years from the time I was um, about 17 till I started trying for kids, like at age 27. Um, and they really did, it really did suppress the androgens and, um, you know, it was helpful, but yet there was no really a hundred percent informed consent. You know, I, if I, I think if I knew all of the risk factors, um, of the pill and, you know, ended up experiencing them, um, to some extent, I don't know if I would have made the same choice today as I did then. Um, so I think that this conversation, you know, when I'm on the podcast talking to experts about the pill, it's not that it's anti-pill, but it's really, I want you to have the informed consent that I really never did. Um, and then when I tried to go back on the pill after, um, you know, having like my two boys and, you know, trying to figure out a way of natural 
or not not natural, but family planning, um, I could not, my body could no longer tolerate the pill. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, really as a treatment for PCOS, which is what my doctors wanted me to use it for. um, So I had to find another way. So, but, but yeah, let's get to, um, you know, some of the nitty gritty for women that are on the pill, like those 10 years, what, what should I have been doing, Dr. Brighton? Totally. And I do want to say that Dr. Lara Brighton, that's B-R-I-D-E-N, and I'm Dr. Jolene Brighton. Uh, I say that because we get confused all the time. We actually got really giddy um, probably a few, it was about six months ago when we realized that her book and my book will be right next to each other on the bookshelf and they're going to be sister books. So we're really excited about that. And she's quoted in my book because Yes, she is the first doctor that I came across talking about post-pill PCOS. And this is something that, like, I stumbled around with language in my practice of, like, what I was observing until I found her work. So, uh, you know, I appreciate you bringing that up because I think it's really important. And if we all take a moment to reflect that, like, 50% of women walking around with PCOS not knowing it, 50% of women walking around with thyroid disease and don't even know it. And why don't we know it? Why don't we know? Well, one, our stories aren't being heard by doctors. And two, they're not doing appropriate lab testing, which is part of what we need to be doing while women are on hormonal birth control. So if you are a woman with polycystic ovarian syndrome or you're using hormonal birth control in any way, stay Keep listening because we're going to go through a whole lot of things you need to be doing. Now, um, I do want to talk about lab testing, but the very first thing I want to say is don't do what Dr. Brighton did, and that is pop that pill every day and then drive your car up to a fast food window. (laughs) So um, I like to say that because I ain't shaming anybody for their dietary choices, but you have to understand that hormonal birth control is depleting nutrients like crazy. So things like magnesium, selenium, zinc, just depleting zinc alone can make your acne a whole lot worse, especially when you come off of it. So while hormonal birth control can suppress the androgens, which it does very well so you don't have to deal with acne or hair growth, when you come off, that lack of zinc due to nutrient depletions can cause even worse symptoms, especially with the androgen rebound. And so with That in mind, you need to be eating a diet that's rich in these minerals. And like one of the easiest, maybe least palatable ways, and I say this because I'm currently talking to you in Paris, France, and like every other block is an oyster bar and seafood. And my son keeps being like, mama, let's get oysters. And in my mind, I'm like, no, (laughs) they're the worst. But they're actually the best. And um, I've committed with my husband, we're going to go to an oyster bar and do it anyways, because there's such a rich source of zinc. So uh, that idea that oysters are aphrodisiac, it's actually true because of those zinc levels. They help optimize testosterone so that you don't get the wrong kind of testosterone, you get the right kind of testosterone. Now, other nutrients that are being depleted by birth control include folate, B12. So these things are definitely important for pregnancy, but they're also important for heart disease, something that PCOS women are at a higher risk for anyways, yeah, and, and just, for neurological just, health. Yeah, no, and to interrupt it. you, I'm sorry, um, and I always try to hit this point home, that so many women are also on metformin, which depletes oh, yes. B vitamins. So it's like you get a double whammy. 
Yes. So I, I really appreciate you saying that because I have found like over the last month, I think like every other day on Instagram, people are asking me like, well, what about metformin? I'm taking the pill and I started metformin and I'm like, oh Lord, did your doctor talk to you about B12? And they're like, no, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh my gosh, no, 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 no. So we know that B12, and here's the thing to understand ladies, is that like, I talk to doctors, so I mentor doctors in this work, and I want some doctors see to me like, oh, well, it's birth control. Like, what? Why do you need a supplement? They can just like, you know, they can just change their diet. And then when I, I ask them, like, okay, so what about like metformin? Like, how do you feel about that? Like, okay, so we know it depletes B twelve. What would you recommend? Oh, that she gets on a sublingual B twelve, or she's taking B twelve. I'm like, right. So you're talking about one medication that you know depletes a nutrient. We know, so statins is, is another one. Sometimes PCOS women get given that because they have higher cholesterol. Um, with statins, same thing, CoQ10. You need to take a supplement of CoQ10. It's not enough to just do the diet. And so that is something that whenever I'm talking to doctors about that, I'm like, look, if you were going to offer metformin and you would recommend B12, why is it with hormonal birth control that depletes B12, folate, magnesium, zinc, selenium, CoQ10, vitamin A, vitamin C, like a lot of nutrients I could keep going with here that you wouldn't recommend a multivitamin or prenatal. And they always look at me kind of shocked, like, oh, yeah, I guess, I guess that's something. And I think a lot of it is because so much of the birth control information and knowledge has been passed down as if it's a woman's right and we have no right to question it in medicine. And like, it is a woman's right, but it so is her right to understand how to take care of her body while she takes it and what the potential side effects are and what she should look out for. And I was talking with a colleague of mine who is a conventional medical doctor, and something really interesting he said to me was, is that this is the way it goes for us, is that like if they taught us in medical school and then it was driven into us in residency, then that becomes truth. And it's going to take a whole lot of studies to change our mind. And he admitted, he was like, this isn't the best way to go about it. But like, it becomes that level of dogma where we're like, no, this is what we were taught about birth control. So I don't care if you have 10 studies. I don't care if you have 20 studies. I don't care if you have 20,000 women. This is what I was taught. This is what it was originally ingrained in me. And I think that's a really important thing to acknowledge is that they planted their roots deep down in the soil around this idea and that it's, it can be a little bit difficult to unroot that and to understand that like, wait, maybe I didn't get the whole story in serving my patients, but I so appreciate you bringing up the double whammy of metformin and how many women are past metformin and they don't even have insulin or hemoglobin A1C, or fasting glucose, or glucose challenge tested. This is the other thing I hear from women, is they're like, well, my doctor said, you have PCOS, here's birth control, here's metformin. And I say, well, what did they test? Well, I had cysts on my ovaries and irregular periods. Okay, so yeah, that might be PCOS. It could also be thyroid. It could also be estrogen dominance. Like we have to look a little bit deeper. And some women, they very much do have the diagnosis of PCOS, but nobody's getting baseline labs on them to understand how these, med these medical interventions, these pharmaceuticals are impacting their health. Like how can you measure change in somebody if you never got that baseline to begin with? Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that, um, now <clears throat> with the, 
the birth of some of these patient direct lab companies. Like I know you and I both like yourlabwork.com. Um, you can, if your doctor is not willing to, to do some of these baseline testing for you, um, you know, like, you know, your fasting insulin levels, you, you can order those yourself really af like it, affordable. It's affordable. Yeah. And I so appreciate that because you deserve to know your data and you deserve to have access to that. And if your doctor won't order it and you, you keep going round and round trying to find someone who will, getting those baseline numbers, I mean, even if you don't totally understand them, you have them. And I think, you know, a lot of doctors will say, well, I'm not going to order these labs because you don't really have the symptoms to warrant it. And that is like old school medicine that needs to go away because if you feel awesome right now, get your labs done. Understand what they look like when you feel awesome. So if you don't feel awesome and then you have changes and you go to your doctor and they're like, eh, they're kind of off, you can compare them and say, no, they're like really off for me because we're moving more and more forward to this individualized medicine and understanding that like each of us, there's variations in the human population about what is optimal. And certainly, you know, I like, I'm gonna call you out New York on um, the states that like do not allow patients to have direct access to your labs. I'm sorry, but you're a state. You are not a human. You have no right to tell this woman that she can't access her data and understand what's going on with her body. All because you have a bunch of legislators passing laws who have no medical education whatsoever who think they know better on a woman's body. Like, I'm, it's 2019. I have zero patience for that. I know. I know. It does seem so antiquated, doesn't it? Um, well, it's just, I just don't understand why in this day and age that people without any medical training whatsoever get to pass laws about a woman's body and then you like you hear these things where like some of these politicians are like I mean they just they say these things where you're like okay we never even taught that in sex ed in like grammar school or like you know like uh, high school so like how did you make that up in your mind? Like, how did you get so far off on the basic physiological understanding of how the human body works? And now you think you've got to pass a law based on misinformation? Like, that's a huge problem in women's medicine. I mean, we record an entire podcast about the disservice done to polycystic ovarian syndrome women oh gosh, in know. terms of research, in terms of politicians, in terms of insurance. Like, it needs to go away. And that's so much of the work that you and I are doing is making sure that women are so educated, so empowered, that at the end of the day, they know they made the best decision for themselves and they can go advocate for their own health and create the change that needs to happen in women's medicine. Yeah, and just a quick shout out to PCOS Advocacy Day on Capitol Hill. That's... Um sponsored by PCOS Challenge every year. It's really a great opportunity to kind of get in the front lines and advocate with, like, with your legislators. I did it last year, and I'm going to do it again this year. Um, the, the National Institute of Health only um, appropriates like 
0.01% of their budget for PCOS research, and that needs to change. So, you know, you have a voice and, and you can use it um, on that PCOS Advocacy Day. So thanks for that. No, no. And that is ridiculous, though, how little research goes to PCOS, how little research goes into endometriosis, how little research goes into actually measuring the statements your doctor is making about birth control. Meanwhile, we dump buckets, boatloads of money into heart disease, diabetes, all these things. Oh, wait, heart disease, diabetes? You mean that thing that's preventable in a, in a PCOS woman, but that she has set the stage for to develop? Should you not intervene early enough? Like, I'm on a little bit of a soapbox right now, but you can tell I get fired up about it. I know, I know. It's good. Um, so we, we talked about, oh, I'm just going to point people to my labs guide um, at pcsdiva.com slash labs. And I know that you talk about that in your, your new book as well, um, the Beyond the Pill, which is um, a brand new and is available really anywhere books are sold. So you can, um, and you can also go listen to podcast 87 where you go into detail about the different tests to have done while you're on the pill. Mm-hmm. So let's go on to like your next tip for us. If we're on the pill, what should we do? Well, I think, you know, this dovetails really nicely because if you're on hormonal birth control, you should continue to monitor your labs. Now, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, those should be squashed while you're on hormonal birth control. But we know that hormonal birth control can and does increase the risk of diabetes through insulin dysregulation and glucose uh, you know, issues. So with that, if you're a woman with polycystic ovarian syndrome, you need to be monitoring your labs and not just your hemoglobin A1C, which is what your blood sugars look like over the last three months, your fasting insulin and your glucose, but you also need to be looking at things like C-reactive protein. So hormonal birth control is inherently inflammatory, and that's a big problem because with polycystic ovarian syndrome, inflammation is driving a lot of these issues. And so measuring your CRP, your C-reactive protein, is very important. Having regular screening of your comp metabolic panel, now that's like the acronym is CMP, that'll tell you about your uh, your sodium and your potassium ratio. This is especially important in a PCOS woman because she is more likely to be given progestin derivatives that help, they do very well in squashing that testosterone trouble that can be made, but it's also potassium sparing, which can increase the risk of having a stroke, having a blood clot, or having a cardiovascular event like heart attack. And so monitoring that can help you understand further. Now, as I talk about in Beyond the Pill, there's some like very special and specific genetic markers. So if you are a woman who is using hormonal birth control, if I did my job right and Beyond the Pill, you will not feel afraid about being on it because you will know exactly what to test and what to look out for. And I actually take you through, you know, what does a heart attack look like? What does a stroke look like? A heart attack for a woman looks very different from a man. In fact, if you walk into a hospital having a heart attack and you walk in at the same time as a man, man is more likely to get treatment and you're more likely to be sent home and told that your symptoms are likely in your head or you're having a panic attack and then you die. That is super lame in women's medicine and it's all because you present differently. And it's also a situation where so many of us will be like, oh, I kind of ha- I'm tired. I flu like symptoms. I don't want to bother anybody. And as it turns out, you're having a cardiovascular event. So 
These are important things to look out for. And a few screenings you can do to understand your risk. One is MTHFR, which is an enzyme that helps us utilize our folate. You can measure that and you can get a homocysteine and understand how are you using your folate and your B12. So, you know, uh, you might be put on metformin and the pill and then be given something like cyanocobalamin and folic acid and you can't actually use those. So you need a different supplement with that. And understand that with MTHFR, you start the pill and you are at higher risk of stroke and heart attack. Same with factor five Leiden. So factor five Leiden is one I cover in my book in the metabolic mayhem chapter because so when it comes to genes, there are two copies. If one factor five Leiden copy is off, so that means you don't process things correctly or at higher risk of forming clots, you have a 35 fold increased risk of developing a clot. That is no joke. And this is something where doctors will say, well, the stroke, clot, heart attack risk, that's really minimal. Sure, it's minimal until you step away from the general study that cherry-picked a population and you look at the nuances of the individual. So these are things that you definitely want to be monitoring. And then for as long as you're on hormonal birth control, you need to be checking your cholesterol as well. So hormonal birth control being inflammatory and then its impact on the liver can raise cholesterol. Cholesterol alone is not going to cause heart issues, but cholesterol that meets inflammation and immune system dysregulation can absolutely lead to long-term cardiovascular risk. And this is something PCOS women are already at risk for. So getting your cholesterol checked, if your cholesterol is going high, check your thyroid and consider transitioning off of hormonal birth control because it's hitting your liver a little too hard. If it's a situation where you're like, I am really concerned about these cardiovascular risks, like we have heart attacks in my family before age 50, getting things tested like an MPO, which is an enzyme that tells you about your immune system activity in your epithelial tissue, so specifically the cardiovascular system, and an LPPLA2 that will tell you about are you forming plaques, what's going on in your heart, and what's going on in your cardiovascular system. These are all really important labs for women with PCOS to be testing, but Absolutely, if they're on hormonal birth control. So I appreciate that you have a resource for your people to be able to get lab testing done. I know your lab work does offer the LPPLA2, which is something that like not a lot of labs offer, but it's highly, highly insightful. So if you're going to stay on hormonal birth control, you need to get this lab testing done. The other nice thing about the COMP metabolic panel, panel that CMP, that is also going to tell you about liver enzymes and your gallbladder function. These are impacted by hormonal birth control. And with women with PCOS, because they typically have, an, well, they do have anovulatory cycles, but they typically have lower progesterone that can lead to an estrogen dominant state. These are women that are at higher risk of losing their gallbladder altogether because estrogen has a big impact on gallbladder health. So taking hormonal birth control is just one more drop in the bucket on that. Yeah, I'm so I'm so glad that you mentioned um, about the blood clotting factors. I mean, women with PCOS, as, as you mentioned, the, the risk is still low, but we're at two times the risk of blood clots while on hormonal birth control. Um, and then the gallbladder issues, I can't tell you how many women I hear from that have had their gallbladders out or have um, with PCOS or, uh, you know, have compromised gallbladder function. So 
So thank you for, for, you know, bringing that to light. Yeah. And with gallbladder, you know, the interesting thing, um, I write about this in my book and I'm like, look, this is an acronym. Please don't judge me, but it is something that like the acronym goes that if you're fertile, you're fat, you're 40, you have fair skin, like these put you at a higher risk for gallbladder disease. And so, you know, fat is just a way that doctors like are able to memorize acronyms. But what fat really means is increased adiposity. So fat cells are more abundant. And that can happen in certain types of polycystic ovarian syndrome. And as we talked about in our previous podcast together, when we were talking more about fertility, is that PCOS women, they tend to be more fertile later in life compared to like the non-PCOS woman. And so you may very well be entering 40. You may have fair skin, you may be overweight, and that's when you start ovulating, and now you're at higher risk of gallbladder disease. But what's really going on there is that estrogen metabolism, which I talk all about in my liver chapter within the book, which is the birth control detox chapter, apparently saying like liver love was not sexy enough. They were like, nobody wants to talk about the liver. I'm like, everybody, like when you read this chapter, everybody, you're going to know everybody wants to talk about the liver because that's that's how we metabolize our estrogen. And really the liver is doing like everything from blood sugar metabolism to sex hormone binding globulin, which keeps estrogen and testosterone in check um, to, you know, helping with your immune system. The liver is involved in just about everything. Yeah. And that's why I really um, love my sparkle cleanse, which I do three times a year just to kind of love up my liver. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, in this modern day, we all need a good liver. So let me say this. If you're skeptical right now being like, I roll, liver cleanse, does someone just say that? Like, I hear you and I feel you because one is you might have this idea that you're drinking swamp water and restricting calories and doing horrible things. No, that's not what like supporting your liver should look like. But I used to be like really skeptical of like, why do people need to do a liver detox? Like your body naturally detoxifies, like it does that all on its own. And then you start getting into the research about environmental toxins, about what the current state is, you know, estrogens. I mean, when you start looking into all of that, it's very easy to see why so many of us benefit from doing a liver detox. And what do we mean when we say that? It's supporting and enhancing what your body is meant to do naturally, but helping it overcome the excess burden that uh, we experience in modern day life. Now, if you're a woman on hormonal birth control, this is you'll read this and be on the pill. This is absolutely something I recommend is that every three to four months, you should be putting yourself through a two-day liver detox. Maybe you're going to need supplements. Not every woman in my practice elects to use the supplements, although that is like rocket fuel to the experience. You ever want to have skin that glows and have a, like a tremendous energy? Have the supplements to that. But you, you know, it's very much being mindful, focusing on how are you breathing? How are you pooping? Are you eating liver detoxifying foods? Are you practicing good blood sugar balance? Like, how are you moving your body? Are you sweating often enough? And while these things, you know, seem really simple and likely you've heard them before, we always have to stand back and be like, well, how well am I doing them? And how often am I doing them? Which is why a mindful commitment of every three months of putting yourself through this process can really help mitigate the side effects of hormonal birth control, enhance your health overall, and make it so when you transition off of birth control, it's 
easy rather than those horrific horror stories that you can read on the internet. Mm. So we've talked about, uh, you know, looking at those nutrient deficiencies that hormonal birth control causes. Um, We looked at the labs that we really need to advocate for and keep track of. And then making sure that, you know, our livers are, are loved, you know, three to four times a year. Um, you know, as we get to the end of our podcast, is there anything else that you want to share with us about, um, you know, managing being on the pill and, you know, having like as optimal health as we can? Your microbiome is everything. So understand this hormonal birth control has been compared to antibiotics in terms of how it decimates your microbiome. Now take a moment, let that sink in. And then think about the last person you met that spent 10, 20, 30 years on antibiotics. That doesn't happen. So this is something that was very startling to me. When I came into the research that said the impact that birth control has on the microbiome, so those good gut bugs, and decreasing microbial diversity is like that of being on antibiotics, I took a huge pause because we are on this for a very long time. I did 10 years. You did 10 years. These were things that were instrumental to our health and our life. So we can be grateful for it. But at the same time, I wish someone would have told me, well, okay, let me say this. I wish someone would have told me to take some probiotics and to eat a little differently. But at the same time, you know, back when I was on the pill, that's when we believed that uh, these gut bugs were freeloaders. They did nothing for your health over overall, that anyone who recommended probiotics or probiotic-rich foods was a quack or a crazy person. Um, Ladies, we can all take a minute to respect how far medicine has come, and that anytime medicine starts dismissing things or calling you or anything else crazy, it's usually because we're about to make a big discovery. So if we understand that hormonal birth control impacts the microbiome in such a negative way and that research is starting to hypothesize that part of why we develop polycystic ovarian syndrome is due to abnormalities in the microbiome, we can certainly come to understand that loving up our gut, like loving up our liver, is going to be a really important part of staying on hormonal birth control. Now, the other piece is that if you're popping that pill every day, that can actually lead to intestinal hyperpermeability, what is more commonly known as leaky gut. And I hate to break it to you, but if your food sensitivities are escalating or you cannot clear gut infections, that means you've got to say bye-bye to hormonal birth control because that's at the root cause of what your issues are and your body just can't handle that daily burden of hormonal birth control. And that's not to say that you can't support your body, that that means you're going to have no birth control or that you have to suffer with acne or hair loss or any of that business, no. And Beyond the Pill has you covered in a whole lot of solutions. But right now, if you are on hormonal birth control, you have to be taking a probiotic. And I actually recommend that women start with a spore-based probiotic move through that for a good three to four months, and then start rotating other species. And the reason for that is because spore-based probiotics survive the stomach acid. They actually re-inoculate the gut. So they actually grow there. Now, that doesn't mean that your other species like lactobacillus, bifido, or you know even Saccharomyces boulardiae are bad or not beneficial. They are 
but they're not going to repopulate your gut. What like would we once believe that? But the reality is, is that they participate in positive cellular signaling, tell your immune system all is well, reset the terrain, so the good gut bugs do want to grow there. Now you gotta feed them too. So it's not enough often to just take probiotics, but I also recommend that women include a variety of fiber in their diet. If you're seed cycling, which I think is excellent, you'll read about that and be on the pill for PCOS women, that's going to get you fiber. If you're eating plenty of plants, you're going to get lots of fiber. And then start thinking about including things that you wouldn't normally eat. So like tiger nuts or burdock root or having like some like actually grating turmeric straight into your food, not just having the powder and getting a variety of fiber. Our microbiome loves variety and variety and showing it lots of different things is actually how you help balance the whole ecology. Understand that we have lots of research on the microbiome, but we are very early in understanding it. And so what that means is, is that you've got to go back to what we have always done, ancestrally speaking. And instead of jumping on the newest rage of like, hey, there's this like new coconut kefir, probably good. We can try that. We can add that in, but we're going to need to also fall back on like, what would our ancestors do? They would eat all the things in the environment that they came across, which include things like tuber vegetables. And, you know, some people will say like, oh, well, potatoes are really bad because of their glycemic index. Or, you know, um, you shouldn't eat uh, things like turnips because of how they have glycogens. But, okay, those things, there's very little concern when you eat them in a moderate amount. The problem is, is that, like, why we say those things is because, well, well the glycogens inside, the glycogens is more about, like, if you have iodine deficiency. Honestly, don't worry about glycogens. Who eats raw turnips? No one. Eat them cooked. But, you know, in terms of, like, what is going on with, like, potatoes and sweet potatoes and those starches, eat a smaller amount. Like we're not saying eat a whole baked potato. And if you look at like why a potato has been vilified, well, because most Americans are like, let me just eat all the French fries. And like, that's how I'm going to get potatoes in that you can incorporate them in your diet in different ways. And those, those starches are not bad. Yes, they can spike your blood sugar, but partnered with fat and healthy proteins, that's going to be less of an issue. And as part of like looking at your plate of like, how can I get as much variety to be feeding my microbiome? That's a very different conversation to be had. So you have to have that diet dialed in when you're on hormonal birth control, as we already talked about. And part of that consideration is making sure that we are feeding our microbiome, we're keeping up healthy gut motility, and that we're eating those fibers because those fibers will also help you and your your gallbladder carry the fat-soluble toxins out and make sure that your estrogen gets out of your body as well. Such such great information. I love that common sense advice about potatoes. You know, I can't tell you how many women vilify potatoes with PCOS, but they're in my meal plans, you know, in in like a combination with fat and protein. And I don't mm-hmm. think for, for most women with PCOS in small amounts, it's not a problem. So 
totally. I just had a whole conversation about this because people are, you know, it's you and I right now, everybody that's listening, we're talking in January. This will come out a little bit later. Um, <clears throat> but with that, so many people have been reaching out to me and they're like, what about this diet? What about that diet? And, um, and then beyond the pill, are you going to have rules? And I'm like, I get a visceral response to rules about food. Like, okay, so like I am an ENTP. If you follow, uh, you know, Myers-Briggs, I'm an A-type personality. That means if you give me rules, I will follow those rules and I will be diligent about those rules until they make me crazy. And it doesn't serve me. It doesn't serve anyone. But like this idea that we have to have rules around eating, like you have children, I have children. How many rules do you have to put on them? Not many. You put food in front of them. You put whole foods in front of them and they will select the food that serves them best. You know, right now, my son, his working diagnosis is pandas. So this is a neuro neurological psychiatric disorder that's rated in an autoimmune condition. He has inflammation in his brain. And they these kids stop eating. And people are like, they stop eating. This is really, really bad for them. Had I not gone through a traumatic brain injury myself and recognized from that experience that like actually I would fast for periods out of the month and then I would make these tremendous gains in my neurological rehab because the ketone spiked. And so I watched this with my kid where he's like, he eats basically, like he'll eat like where he minimizes food and then he eats a ketogenic diet. And it's not because I'm putting ketogenic foods in front of him and being like, you're just going to eat a bunch of fat and leafy greens. And like, that's it. I put all the food in front of him and he selects what he needs and it blows me away how I just watch and I observe this where I'm like, okay, so he doesn't want to eat these certain things, but he's gravitating towards really high fat and leafy greens and restricting calories and he'll do that for five to seven days, which kind of freaks me out. But at the same time, I can respect through the research, like Walter Longo's research is that like He's spiking his ketones. He's actually repairing his brain. He's fueling himself with fat. And so I say all of this so that you who is listening can recognize that everything you need to know about how to eat, about how to take care of your body, you know this. It's inherent to you. And the idea that we have to put rules around food, I don't know who came up with that, but I'm going to guess the diet industry and because it doesn't serve us. Like, Sometimes you're going to want more sweet potatoes and more, you know, potatoes in general. When is that going to be? Most likely before your period because of fluctuations in dopamine, serotonin, what's going on with your progesterone, how that's changing your metabolism. And then other times you're going to gravitate to where you're like, yeah, I just want to eat fat, vegetables, protein, and that's all I want to do. The odds are that's going to be, you know, as you roll out of your menstrual cycle and as you enter into that ovulation phase and, you know, if you are an ovulating female or your body is trying to get to that. And so to understand that, like, food rules don't really serve especially in the context of a cycling female, because we ebb and flow 
every single day, every hour of the day, and all throughout our cycle. And that's why in Beyond the Pill, we go through 30 days of testing, but you will read and you will understand that I'm like, we have to understand what's true for you. Because while some women, they can't do, you know, they can't do something like uh, dairy, that's going to cause acne and cause them problems. There are other women who are like, actually, I feel pretty good when I have some cheese. Like that seems to work for me. And there are definitely health experts out there that would be like, Dr. Brighton, did you just say that someone could eat dairy? Like that's the worst thing ever. And I'm like, no, the worst thing ever is acting like, you know, we can only eat certain foods. And like, let's just take a moment to respect that like our food supply used to be much more vast than what it is now. And now it is you know, we have very little variety in terms of our produce. Like our meats are coming from the same places. Like we are losing variety. And then we have this other side that's putting more and more rules on us so that we cut even more variety. And at the end of the day, maybe all that information is true, but is it true for you? That's what we need to ask. And we need to respect that like, you know, your body and you know how you feel in it and you have the power to understand how foods work for you. You know, I, I've loved this conversation so much. And I was actually, before we got um, on the, the podcast together, I had gone back to look at what I sent you um, when I read your book. You gave me a preview copy um, last year. And, you know, I sent you back an email. And this is so true. I mean, the, what you're saying right now, and you're, you're, well, this is what I wrote. I said, that you have provided such a groundbreaking solution for common hormonal struggles women face both on and off the pill. Your words are uplifting, inspiring, and empower women to honor their body. It's really a must-read book to help women take control of their hormones naturally. And just, you know, listening to you talk today, I love that message of honoring your body and your individual body um, and, and that message of empowerment. And I'm just so grateful that you, I, I know what it's like to write a book. It's just a long slog. Um, <laughs> totally right. Um, so I'm just so grateful that you wrote Beyond the Pill and that you've came on my podcast today um, to share your vast knowledge of women's hormone health. You know, I, I just want to say, this book would have never come to be without women like you. And so I want to just take a moment to honor you because you've absolutely supported this book from day one. You've also raised so much awareness, created a community of women who are hungry for change. And, you know, this is something that I think every woman listening needs to understand because you can walk into a doctor's office and they can, they can leave you with a sense of feeling so disempowered and like you have no hope. But understand this right now, like just being a part of the PCOS Diva community, you are creating change. And for every time a doctor makes you feel hopeless or makes you feel like maybe your symptoms are all in your head, take that energy and channel it just like Amy has done with the PCOS Diva community and create some change. Because 
truly, I think, um, <clears throat> I think the whole world is going to be in for a really big surprise when every single one of us takes control of our own health, stops subscribing to the dogma, and puts our hormones back into balance. Like, we will be unstoppable. And truly, the change we need in women's medicine isn't going to come by any single one of us demanding change. It's going to come because we create communities, we band together, and we're part of something bigger. And we, it all really starts with healing yourself and letting that extend outward. So I just want to take, you know, the, I, I just want to take like months to honor you because oh, <laughs> I think you've done so such an amazing job in really supporting the PCOS community. And I think that, you know, without you, they, they wouldn't even be where they're at today. Like it is, you've had such an impact on this community and I hope you recognize this and ladies who are listening right now, I hope you leave a comment and you show Amy some love because she works really, really hard at making sure that you guys have access to the best information to support you. So thank you so much for having me for the work that you do and for being a change maker in this world. Oh, I so appreciate your kind words, Dr. Brighton. Um, And I want, before we leave, I just want you to let people know where they can find out more about your work. I mean, we talked about um, Beyond the Pill, but you have lots of other things going on as well. Totally. Here I am gushing on you, and I totally forgot about that part of like, oh yeah, you guys, do you want to know who I am? Uh, so you can find me at drbrighton.com. That's that's my main hub. It's drbrighten.com. You can also find me on Instagram. That's my main playground. So at Dr. Jolene Brighton. And then I have a YouTube channel because I really recognize that we all learn differently. And some of us don't want to read long blog posts, but we actually just want snippets of video and audio information so that we can get our learn on. So you can find me at all of those places. And right now, you know, if you grab Beyond the Pill, I want to show you much love and gratitude. You can go to beyondthepillbook.com and you can get yourself a, a plethora of resources, including a lab guide, recipes, and five exclusive interviews with experts who will help enhance your journey with Beyond the Pill. That's wonderful. I mean, such great resources for really such little money. I mean, when we put pretty much everything that we know into a book that costs like, I don't know, $27 um, for hardcover, it's, it really is such a great value. So I really, I encourage women listening to pick up a copy of Beyond the Pill, um, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, really anywhere books are sold. Um, and thank you again for sharing, you know, your, your time with us today, Dr. Brighton. And I hope to have you back on the PCOS Diva podcast again soon, because I know we could have gone on and on. Yeah. Yeah. We need to have like a political rant session, I think, where we like call to arms, like action to happen so that we get the research we need in women's medicine. But thank you. That's an aside, ladies. Stay tuned. That's another day. Uh, But thank you so much for having me, for all of your support. Truly, you know, my work and this book wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for women like you. So I'm so grateful. Well, I'm happy that everybody tuned in and listened to this podcast today, and I look forward to being with you again very soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, that wraps up our podcast today. 
Thank you so much for joining us on the PCOS Diva podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you liked this episode, remember to subscribe to PCOS Diva on iTunes or wherever else you may be listening to this show. And if you have a minute, please leave me a quick review on iTunes because I love to hear from you. If you think someone else might benefit from this free podcast, please take a minute to share it with a friend or family member so she can benefit from it too. And don't forget to sign up for my free weekly newsletter. Just enter your email at PCOSDiva.com to get instant access and make sure you never miss a future podcast. This is Amy Medling wishing you good health. Bye-bye.